Welcome to my first interview of 2024. And today's guest is Janet Grand. She is a Brit who married a Frenchman and lives in South Africa. <laughs> Not confused. I don't think you're confused, though, are you? <laughs> Not at all. No, I feel no. like I'm in the right place at the right time. <laughs> yes, that's great. I love that saying. So welcome. I am eager to have a conversation about your expertise and the background that led you to what you do now. And I think it's such a great time of year to talk about this yeah. with a lot of people doing dry Januaries. Yeah. Yes, Some me included. Probably... Yes, me included. So <laughs> I, well yeah, done. I did well, it last well year and I yeah. lost 10 pounds at the beginning of the year. Yeah. So Absolutely. let's talk. Yeah. Why don't you introduce yourself and who you are and what you do, and then we can get into your backstory. Sure. Well, I grew up in UK, in London. I had a corporate career. I was an HR director. I worked for Christie's, the art auction house. I don't know if you, you've heard of Christie's. Oh, yes, it of was course. A, yeah. Yes. Well, it was a lovely job, traveled all over the world. And I, I love the people side of, of the work. I did lots of training, which I love, lots of coaching. And one of my tasks was to take care of our specialists. You know, we in the art world, there's, there's Christie's and there's Sotheby's and they, they both want the best experts, of course. So we wanted to make sure that our specialists were happy and they weren't going to get poached by the opposition. So it was part of my job to take them out to lunch and dinner now and again and to take them to the best restaurants and pour the best wine down them and make sure that they didn't have any grievances. So that was a a typical, and I obviously with the business travel, when they bring you a glass of champagne in business class, etc. So yeah, there was a lot of drinking in my work, not to mention going out with colleagues afterwards as well after work. They but, call those liquid lunches. <laughs> yes, we did a lot of those back in the day. But I, I, I've always been a very enthusiastic drinker as a teenager. I mean, I was shy and awkward like most teenagers. But when I started drinking, I just felt like a different person. It felt like a magic potion. And of course, you want to fit in with everybody else and they're drinking as well. So I drank as a teenager and it carried on. And when I was 25, I had a real wake-up call in that I completely went over the top one night at a party we were having at our apartments. I had a blackout. I got blackout drunk. And in my blackout, I went to have a bath before I went to bed, which was what I did every night. I was on automatic pilot. So I went into the bathroom, locked the door, and I passed out and I was under the water and fortunately one of my flatmates saw that I'd vanished, came and hammering on the door and eventually, well, not eventually, but quite quickly, she realised what was going on and she called the emergency services and they had to come and break the door down and resuscitate me. So that was like a huge wake up call. Wow. In, that gives me chills. So you would have died. Absolutely. You would and have drowned. Back now. I think, wow, what an idiot. But in fact, we just made a joke out of it. We made a story. You know, people mm -hmm. would say, oh, did you hear about Janet and her bath? You know, what an idiot. Ha, ha, ha. And I really wasn't particularly phased by that. So carried on drinking. But that was an absolute exception. I mean, that only happened very, very rarely that I had a blackout. 
And then the next real wake up call was in my 50s when I had breast cancer. And of course, the link between heavy drinking and breast cancer is very firmly established these days. This was back in 2006 when people didn't talk about it quite so much. But really, any so, cancer, I mean, cancer loves sugar and alcohol. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Seven types of cancer now alcohol is linked to. So, yeah, I had breast cancer, but I didn't stop drinking. I suppose I was in denial, but I wasn't really aware. And I did actually ask my oncologist, did it, should I be eating in a special way now? Should I give up alcohol? And he said, no, my dear, just have the odd glass of wine, you know, yeah. you've got to enjoy it. It's crazy what, the, what cancer doctors tell you to do nutritionally. <laughs> but to be fair to him, he said the odd glass of wine, but to a drinker, you see, that yes. means a bottle of wine a night. So yes. I was back in my flow. So I think sometimes do you think the yeah. mentality too is, especially if you have cancer, well, I'm going to enjoy myself because I might not be here much yeah. longer. I think sometimes exactly. that plays into I'm it. Exactly. I'm going to die anyway. So I started yeah. feeling sorry for myself then. <laughs> so that was another wake up call I ignored. My final wake up call that I actually listened to, thank God, came when I was 63. And I had a, a blackout, a, such a serious blackout that I lost an entire day, really. And what was really frightening about this blackout was that I was with some friends and we went on quite a long walk. And apparently I was walking and I was talking and I wasn't even slurring my words or stumbling. They said that I seemed completely normal, but I had absolutely no memory of it at all. And this really scared me. And I researched it a little bit. And apparently when that happens, it's not that you've forgotten stuff. It's that your brain is so soaked in alcohol that it can't make the memories in the first place. Mm. And I thought that was really frightening. And that did it for me. So I quit. Wow. And so you said you went on a walk. When I think of walks, I think of daytime walks. So were, hmm. were you getting up in the morning walk. and drinking? Yes, I was away for a weekend with friends, you know, we rented a beautiful house. One of those weekends where you have bubbly at breakfast and we'd gone for an afternoon walk. I had no recollection. It still, still scares me. So I quit and I said to my husband the next morning after that weekend, I said, that's it. I'm done with alcohol. And rather than laughing, you know, because obviously he'd had to put up with years of this. He said to me, you've never said that before. You've always said you're going to cut down because I couldn't imagine my life without alcohol. So I always used to say, oh, I'll just drink a bit less, I'll cut down. But this time I realized it had to go. So I trotted off to AA like you do when you've got a drinking problem, but I didn't like it at all. It just wasn't my, my scene. You know, I hated labeling myself an alcoholic. I found it very depressing. And then when they told me I was powerless because I'm a kind of 1970s woman's lib type, <laughs> I didn't like that at all. I thought, I'm not powerless. That's ridiculous. So I couldn't cope with their approach. I know it works for millions of people, but it didn't work for me. So I carried on looking and eventually I found a workshop in London, which is where I'm from. I was in South Africa by this point. So I went back to London, went to this. It was just a one day workshop and they gave us some tools about behavior change, which were useful. But what really did it for me is there were other people there like me, people I could relate to. There were women with good jobs, nice families, whereas the AA crowd, I mean, I tried a few meetings 
but mostly there were people that were further down the line than me. I was probably well on my way there, but, you know, they'd lost everything. They used to drink in the morning and really serious problems. Whereas these ladies, there were professional working women that used to down a bottle of wine every night and they realised it wasn't sustainable if they wanted to be healthy. So we all got on a WhatsApp group and talked to each other every day and supported each other. So that's when I realised this thing is about community. And that's where AA does have it right. It is there about community as well. But I always say you've got to find your people. You've got to find the right crowd, basically. And that's why Tribe Sober, it's quite nice that we've got a demographic, obviously because of me, an older woman. Because yeah. a lot of Why don't you say what Tribe Sober is? Because that's the first time you've mentioned it. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, just to go back to this workshop and then the community. So I managed to quit drinking because of this, the workshop and the people that I've met. And I, I didn't drink for five months, but I felt terribly depressed and I thought, oh, what have I done here? Because you know, I miss the party times and yeah. I miss my, my drinking buddies that had given me up as a boring twit, you know, that was trying this crazy thing. Well, yeah, um, if your identity was all around yeah, this happy drunk and like yeah. having fun and good times, because, yeah. you know, before we hit record, we talked about like different kinds of drunks and there's mean drunks <laughs> and there's happy drunks. And I had a roommate in college who was a mean drunk. And so your personality does change and that's not really who you are. So you couldn't find happy in the sober world, right? No, and I didn't really know what to do with myself because I was retired by then. So I didn't know what to do all day, really, if there weren't any nice lunches coming up or a day of recovering from another lunch that had gone over the top a little bit. I was completely lost. But it's like, what do you do? You like... Like when I was doing dry January last year, it was so interesting because you go to parties and you want to hold a drink. Yeah. You just want to be like them. (laughs) And so what do you put in your drink? And then if you wear, if you're in a like glass glass and not like a wine glass or a drinking glass, like liquor drinking glass, then people are like, well, why aren't you drinking? Like there's something wrong with you. And so it's like, I remember I was a, a smoker back when I was in college and quitting smoking was so hard because like when I'd have a drink, I'd have a cigarette. And so it was like when you have these physical habits that associate with that identity, it's Mm. really hard to find the alternative. It is. It is. It's very hard. And that's why it's so hard to do this on your own. But if you are in a community, we've all been through all of this stuff. So everybody helps and advises each other. But to go back to how I started Tribe Sober. So there I was five months sober, depressed, thinking, what have I done? But I couldn't start drinking again. Well, for a start, my husband kept telling me how proud he was of me. Mm. (laughs) So I've got to keep going here. And were you married Um, for a long time? Yeah, yeah. That, give him credit. Yeah, because... yeah. He hung around through the bad times because he really doesn't drink. He can take it or leave it. The French are far more sensible than the Brits with their alcohol. They're more connoisseurs than, <laughs> than we are, than binge drinkers. But yeah, I was depressed, didn't know what to do. And then one day, somehow, I got this idea because I was exercising a lot just to fill the time. And I was out exercising one day. And I had this idea that 
because I'd been in training and development and I've designed hundreds of workshops about management skills and coaching and all sorts of stuff, I thought, well, I can design a workshop about how to quit drinking and how to thrive in sobriety and enjoy your life. So that was an idea that I had. And I designed it and I ran the workshop and it was sold out the first one. So and was that thought, virtual or was that in person? That was in person. This was way before. Oh, yeah. So and and tell me, were you um, retired or where were you in your life in terms of feeling value? Because I think this happens to a lot of people is they retire and then they don't have that connection to being of service or yeah. feeling valued in what they do every day. And so were you not working? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I was, when I came to South Africa, I was 50 years old and financially I could have retired. I could have done nothing. And I did try that, tried doing nothing for about six months, but I just drank even more then because I had all this time on my hands and there's so much lovely wine here and wine farms. I spent my day exploring wine farms. So I decided I can't just do nothing or drink myself to death. So I set up as an HR consultant and I, I did that for 10 years here and I loved it. And then we went to live in France for a bit and then we came back. And then that's when I decided that I'd have to tackle my drinking problem. So got sober, got depressed and then started Tribe Sober. So I started it with, with workshops and then we ran workshops in Joburg and I ran some in London and people would stay in touch and they say, we want to stay in touch with you and everyone that we met on the workshop. And we want more content. We want to keep learning because even those people that were sober by then, they said, we want to learn more about personal development and you're a trainer and you can teach us stuff. So that's how the membership started, really, so that we could keep people connected and keep them learning because yeah. there's two steps to this journey. The first step is to quit drinking. And then the second step is to build an alcohol-free lifestyle that you love, you know, yes. a life you don't want to escape from because that's what I was doing in the end. I was just escaping from my life, which was crazy. Yeah. And sometimes you need to develop new friendships that support that. Yes. The, the, the friendships yeah, I mean, that you I have are like, here, come on, just one won't yeah. hurt, right? They don't do that anymore. <laughs> That's good. But, yeah. But the awesome thing is you make new friendships and much more authentic friendships. And Tribe Sober is international. So, I mean, we have all these WhatsApp groups of different countries. And it's lovely because some of us have been together for years now. And it's That's like amazing. a family. And we, somebody we to go stay stuff. with when you travel abroad. Yes, yeah, yeah. We've, we've done that. We've done that. We're having a little retreat in Mauritius at some point, and we have a, a Zoom meeting almost every day, and people turn up from everywhere. So it's really fun. So what I, I love is you're just another example of somebody who was very active, loved the profession you were in, had a great career, and then retired, but didn't feel that there was purpose anymore. And you're yeah. using the, your story and your experience, which I think is why we're here. It's like why we're here to have that lived experience. And then yeah. if we are strong enough to get through it, which everybody is, but if you follow the path to who you really are and with you, it required getting sober. And then you use that journey and that lived experience to help people 
to find new yeah, purpose. I mean, well, yeah, we often say, in fact, there's a book called We Are the Luckiest by an American lady called Laura McCowan. And we say that we're glad that we came to this crisis, really, this drinking problem, because if we hadn't had this problem, we wouldn't have had to explore who we really are and and rebuild our lives. Because those of us that have got sober, we've discovered so much about ourselves and, and what we really want to do for the rest of our lives. Because certainly as you get older, I mean, and I know quite a few people that are just drinking their life away, really. They're going to yes. miss their retirement. Yes. So, yes. yeah, I don't really have any regrets about my life and my drinking because I feel it was for a purpose. Mm-hmm. And I feel so much more meaning and purpose in my life now than I did in corporate, to be honest, because all I was doing there was making rich shareholders richer, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas now I'm saving lives and it's yeah. much more, more meaningful. Do you have children? Yeah, yeah. I've got one son who's 42. Yeah. And how did you getting sober affect the people who love you? Like, how did your relationship change with your husband? How did your relationship change with your son? Yeah, well, my husband was delighted because we'd had many rows over the years because he just didn't really get the way that the Brits drink. And he was astonished to start with when we got married and started living together. And and he would, uh, would just say, because he didn't understand alcoholism, he, so he would say things like, Okay, darling, we're going out tonight. Why don't you just have two glasses of wine? (laughs) And I would genuinely try. But if you've got a problem, if you've crossed a line, there's no way you're going to stop after the second glass of wine. Well, and I found with my roommate that in college, I found that she who, who ended up and I think I mentioned this before we hit record. So just to fill people in is that she was she had a problem with drinking. And she was such a mean drunk. And there's a couple of situations in college where it was like, clearly there was a problem. And then when she got married and had a couple of kids and the stress got a hold of her, she just became a flaming alcoholic. And it wouldn't require two, two glasses of wine for her to change. She'd have one glass of wine and she was a different person. So yeah. that's another interesting thing is when you, he says, only have two glasses of wine. If it was my friend, she would have like two glasses would have been two, too many, <laughs> you know, yeah. would have been one too yeah. many. Yeah. Well, after my two glasses of wine, my husband used to say that he knew he had to get me out of wherever we were because my voice would change. And as you say, you know, you become a different person, which is frightening. So my husband's delighted. He's put up with a lot over the years and we nearly split up over it. And we were just about moving towards an ultimatum, I think. But you're in such a weird headspace when you're drinking too much. I remember thinking, oh, well, when I get an ultimatum, maybe I'll stop then because you're always putting it off, pushing it down the line. But what I'd say to people, anyone listening to this, is you don't have to wait for rock bottom. It's far better Mm -hmm. to step off the slippery slope before you get to that stage. So husband was delighted. And my son didn't used to talk much about my drinking when he was growing up. I mean, it, it, I was still, I think, a good mum. Uh, but I was definitely in the mommy juice gang. And we, we'd have mm-hmm. children's parties and the kids would be on a sugar high and the mums would be drinking their bubbly. I mean, it was... Uh, Did you drink time. while you were pregnant? Because back in the day, I drank when I was pregnant. I didn't you know, <laughs> drink to excess, but... 
my kids, my one daughter has had four kids, four years. She didn't drink <laughs> during her oh, pregnancies because yeah. I mean, in between she did, but like, uh, and my kids, they like to have their wine and for them yeah. to cut it off for nine months. Gosh, more power to you. That's great. Yeah, I did. I think I didn't really feel like it. And I was, you know, quite anxious about being pregnant. So yeah, I managed that quite easily. But then I was definitely, and when I was a working mom, I found that really exhausting, all the juggling and you'd come home from a long day in a corporate job and then you'd have to do all the kids stuff and the domestic stuff. And at the end, by about eight o'clock, you got to sit down maybe if you were lucky. And I was so desperate for a glass of wine by then because it was, oh, I deserve this, you know. <laughs> yeah. So my son who didn't really say much as he was a teenager, although obviously he must have noticed. But what he did when I got sober was he said, well, I never thought you'd do it because you're quite old now and I thought you'd, you'd just carry on. Uh, but I'm so proud of you and I'm so pleased that you've done this. And we've become much closer actually because of it. So he was so delighted when I set up Tribe Sober. He's a social media consultant. So he immediately dived into helping me with my website. Oh, that's my logo. great. Yeah. So, yeah, my family are much. Uh, much so does he closer. drink? That's an interesting question because. No, hardly it... ever. Yeah. But um, he's not averse to having the odd spliff. You know, he's not mm -hmm. an angel. Yeah. I find that there's sometimes there's two extremes. They either anti-alcohol or they are what was modeled is what they do. My mother was an alcoholic, although she's a very functioning alcoholic. And at the time I didn't really realize, I don't think I knew how much she drank, but her mother was an alcoholic and her mother's mother was right. an alcoholic, long line of alcoholics, well, well a lot of dysfunction, you. a lot of like um, not speaking to family members for number of months years that was how they handled things you know the drinking get drunk and then fight and then I'm not going to talk to you and it, it was just a terrible terrible thing fortunately my mother wasn't like that she wasn't somebody who wouldn't talk to to people she became a guidance counselor so she had an ability to talk to people and to resolve issues I think was really great about her but there was a couple instances when I was a kid that I remember one time and I was probably about 10 years old and I went, my parents were having, they had parties. They had a lot of parties and we had a pool in our backyard and she broke a glass and it fell on her foot and the top of her foot and, you know, bleeding, like bleeding, bleeding. I, and I, I, I wasn't there because I was little and so I've probably in bed at this point, but the next day, uh, of course I heard about it, but she went into the pool and dangled her feet because she was bleeding. I mean, can you imagine like bleed, like she needed stitches. She was dangling her foot in the pool. And then she that ultimately, yeah. <laughs> and she ultimately went to the emergency room. Somebody took her to the emergency room and they stitched her up. And I remember her talking and saying to the doctor, it's funny what you remember, but she's saying to the doctor that he must have taken a course at Singer because Singer made sewing machines back then. They must have taken a course at Singer because he was such a good stitcher. And, and how funny it was. It's like everything's funny. Everything's a joke because you yeah. play it down. Like it's like, no, it first like of all, like bark. you, you, you yeah. could have really hurt yourself. And then you don't even realize the seriousness of it. And then another time they were having a party. 
I was at a friend's. I had an accident uh, where I was at a friend's house. We went to a pool and her brother pushed me into the pool. And it was like a fun thing. He's like pushed me into the pool. And I didn't realize somebody was swimming into the side of the pool. And so I tried to like leapfrog over the person and I broke and dislocated my finger. It like my fourth finger on my right hand went all the way past my pinky. I came home. They were having a pool party and my dad wanted to push my finger back in place. He said, I can do it. I can do it. Sit down here next to the pool. So I sat down and he, he couldn't do it on his own. Can you imagine? Again, I was about 10 or 11 years old and he put a pencil. He goes, go get a pencil, go get a pencil. He put a pencil between my pinky and my fourth finger, tried to push it back, couldn't push it back. (laughs) And then I mean, it sounds like a horrible story now that I'm telling I me, mean, I loved my parents and I thought I was <laughs> I had a good upbringing, but there were the, a couple of instances of this. And this is what happens yeah. when alcohol, you don't know what you're doing. What you, what are you doing? You're more worried about having a good time and having fun and not interrupting your party. And that was the yeah. whole goal here. And so I went to bed with my finger all the way over here. They didn't take me to the hospital. They didn't take me to the doctor. And I remember the next morning I woke up and I looked at my hand and my finger was on not where it was supposed to be. And I had all this bruising down my hand. And my mom did take me to the doctor that day. And I never thought about it, but I wonder what the doctor thought. This happened last night, you know, and you're like here like all this time later. And then I had to have one of the reasons I'm petrified of shots is I had to have Novocaine in my elbow and in my wrist and and it was broken. It was actually my hand was broken and had to have a cast up to my elbow. Uh, so, yeah, that is it, I worry about because it, there is a family and it's not only I think it's genetic as well as I think it's also modeling. And I think modeling probably number one. But I, I think certain people have a propensity genetically. Oh, yeah. So do you think that? I think, yeah, drinking as a teenager, it makes you more likely to develop a problem later on. And so does having alcoholism in the family. But as far as the genetic thing uh, is concerned, we always say to people, because, you know, sometimes people say, oh, it's hopeless. My parents were my grandparents. And I say to them that think of the genetics as the gun and you've got your finger on the trigger the trigger is your lifestyle you don't have to pull the trigger on it Mm. and we can break the mold and there's something beautiful in breaking that mold which you've done because you know your children hopefully don't have an issue whereas yeah yeah I and there is a little bit on my ex-husband's side and so I worry about my kids because of that but I I mean they're okay I think that with the genes, I think like with me, I can't drink much and I get sick. If I have Mm. like more than two glasses of wine and things start to get a little like dizzy, I get sick. I throw up. I can't handle it. It's like a, (laughs) it's like a car sickness. It's like, I just can't. And so well, it is poison. <laughs> yeah. And some people can just knock them down. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. So I think when it comes to how you process that, those chemicals and that liquid and stuff, yeah. that's the part that I think is genetic is 
where yeah, and, and my, I think it's yeah. Asian people they often they go all flushed when they have a drink and that they, they just can't um you know bear alcohol their mm-hmm. physiology so I think that's quite interesting yeah but yeah. yeah. So I think that just the awareness helps too when you yeah. have that family history and if you can communicate yeah. to yeah. your kids and give yeah. them that sense of understanding and you know just beware and they can navigate through that and and Yeah, and lots yeah. of our ladies we give them trackers and things and they put them on the fridge where they color in every alcohol free day that they've had. And they get the kids involved, almost making it into a game. And it's great because it opens the dialogue then. People will ask their mum, why are you not drinking? And then you can, depending on what age they are, of course, you can explain why it's not good to drink too much and why it's good to to check your dependence now and again. So it's important to have that dialogue. But yeah, yeah I mean, thinking about your swimming pool accidents, uh, one of our ladies, she was at a golf club drinking session I mean she used to love her golf and the drinking went with the golf Mm -hmm. and she said one one evening she was there and there was lots of drinking going on and her phone rang and it was actually her daughter her grown-up daughter and they'd been some problem and her daughter was in hospital and she said all she felt was irritation that she was going to have to cut her drinking session short even though she really loved her daughter and they were very close Mm -hmm. And she said that was the moment when I knew that I had to stop this. Because if you can't get yourself to the hospital to see whoever's in trouble, then it's sad. And lots of people say one of the great pleasures of sobriety is that I know if there's an emergency, I can get out there and handle it. But if yeah. you've already a bottle of wine, you're not in a good state to drive anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. My mother ended up, you know, I didn't. Because when they retired, they moved out of state. And so I didn't know. I just know that when we'd go over there for dinner, there'd always be a little bit of extra alcohol. And then her words would get a little slurry. And I remember she used to always say, I don't want to be like my my mother. And, and But yeah. she kind of turned into her. My grandmother, in fact, died choking on a piece of steak at a restaurant where they were at a function, at an event so she was probably drunk and drinking and she gulped down a piece of steak and that ended up killing her. And so my mom, after they retired and moved, they drank more. And so my mom was always very, she had a beautiful figure. She could have been a Playboy magazine. Um, she just had a beautiful figure. She would run around in her her two piece. But I think she used drinking to to maintain a healthy weight. She did. She didn't eat. She her calories. Yeah, yeah. I would say that in my twenties, I lived on white wine and cigarettes. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. And when my dad died, she, you know, imbibed. And once we moved her up to my sister and I, where we lived in the state that we lived in, she was actually paying. She had a couple of hip surgeries. And so she wasn't actually mobile and she had sold her car. She didn't really want to drive anymore. And she was having somebody in her leisure world apartment complex go to the grocery store and buy her wine because she couldn't go get it. And she ultimately yeah. ended up, I, I caught it and I was like, hey, don't do this. You can't buy her alcohol because she's getting drunk in her place. And But unfortunately, there was a restaurant on the in the complex that she could walk to and she ended up 
going and drinking and walking home on her walker across the parking lot to her apartment and fell and actually had broke her, you know, where you have a hip replacement and the piece goes down into your femur. Well, she shattered her femur. And we didn't even know my sister and I, we just knew we couldn't get in touch with my mother the next day. And we found out by calling the guardhouse at the Leisure World complex and asking if an ambulance had come the night before. And they said, oh, yes. Yeah. Somebody was taking an ambulance. We found her at the hospital and that she functioned. She completely she was a guidance counselor. She worked her whole life. She wasn't a like on the couch and, and drinking in the morning kind of drunk. She was a social drunk. And maybe somebody will resonate with this and, and the, it'll wake them up to kind of how they're living. We went to her apartment and she had urinated and bled all over like the carpet and the in the couch. If somebody saw her fall. We found out somebody had seen her fall in the parking lot. She was able to get back into her apartment. And then ultimately in the middle of the night, she called an ambulance. <laughs> I can't imagine. But she was probably it didn't hurt as much because she yeah. was drunk. But to imagine that like what pain she couldn't even get go to the bathroom and and ultimately she couldn't deal with my father's death and she's still alive but she's pretty much you know an invalid and it's really sad really sad so what would you say to somebody because there's so many arguments against drinking anyway um but as you get older you know, really, I, I think I wrote an article once, six reasons to ditch the booze at 60 years old. And there's so many health reasons as we get older. And mm -hmm. your mum's story is so sad. And I think it's very typical, sadly. Yeah. But, so one of your articles sorry. struck me, which is why I reached out to you. And I, I just think it's a valuable conversation to have. And everybody needs to look at their life and think, how much is it being influenced by alcohol? If there's one thing we can do for ourselves, for our health and our happiness as we get older, it's give up drinking. Yeah. So what would you say to someone who is dealing with somebody who had an alcohol problem? Because there is likely somebody who's listening who either has a spouse or a friend that or a child that has a problem. Yeah. Because it has to come from the person. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what, yeah. what, like for me with my college roommate, I just stopped talking to her. I, I wrote her an email and I, mm. I wish I still had that email because it was a really profound email. But at, I remember at the very end, I said, I can't support you anymore because I feel like being your friend is enabling you. And when you come out of your alcoholic haze, I will be here. Yeah. And I, I just couldn't deal with her anymore because A, she was a mean drunk and B, we did an intervention. Her family and a couple of her best friends did an intervention and she went off to rehab, but it, it, she went like three or four times. But the good news is, is that 11 years later, I heard through the grapevine, I'd run into her brothers separately at different occasions. And sometimes you think serendipity, like why, why did yeah. this happen? And then I ran into her father at a doctor's appointment, just coincidentally, had her, he was taking his wife to, for a mammogram. I was getting a mammogram, ran into them. And after having run into her brothers on separate occasions over the past year, I found out from her dad, yes, she's still sober. She's working. She's functioning. She's great. And I called her. I made a phone call. And this was yeah. like back in 2000 and early 2007. And yeah. we've been back besties since oh 
And she's amazing. She's amazing. She finally got the help she needed. She finally didn't want to live like that anymore. And we hang out. We do girls weekends and she brings her O'Doul's and she does her, you know, she's fine with it. And, and she's, you know, give her credit because I didn't think she was somebody who could ever recover from that. Yeah. It was such a part of her identity. Yeah. Beautiful recovery stories around. Yeah. So it's frustrating as somebody who's witnessing somebody you love, my mother and my, my best friend from college was my roommate. I felt so helpless. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a difficult one that Laurie, because as you say, until that person is ready, I mean, I've, I've been on the other side of that because for at least a decade was telling me to, to call it, to, to drink less or to quit. And I just didn't want to hear it really. And I would defend myself and say, well, you know, it's my thing. It's how I relax. It's how I let my hair down. I work hard. This, that's, that's what I need to do. You just come up with so many excuses. And people, like your roommate, really, when they're ready, they're ready. We have people joining Tribe Sober. We're, we're just 400 members. We're not particularly big. But when people join us, we do have a churn rate and out of that churn rate, about half of those people leave because they've got sober, which is fantastic. And they say, thank you very much. You know, um, I'm off now. Some of them stick around, but some of them don't, which is, is great. And then we have the other ones that leave because they just can't do it. They're not ready. Mm-hmm. And we realize that how we try and, and help them as much as we can. We put a lot of energy into it and we try all these approaches that we've learned but sometimes someone just isn't ready. Um, yeah. And you wonder, you wonder longer. how many of those people say, I'm sober, fine, yay, bye, yeah. are actually oh, yes. not. We get that as well. People are sober for a while. And then there's this thing that happens. And I think if I hadn't started Tribe Sober, it could have happened to me. Because after you've been sober for a few months, you start thinking, hmm, I've been sober for a while now. Maybe I'll just have a glass of champagne at that wedding on Saturday. And then you start thinking, well, I wasn't that bad, but that's your brain tricking you. It's even got a name. It's called fading effect bias. So uh, we get a lot of people that join us, get sober, leave, stay sober for a few months, then they fall off the wagon and then they come back and they said, you know, you're right. We really needed to stay in the community longer we've got people that have stayed with us for years because they enjoy paying it forward they enjoy helping new people Mm -hmm. and I think you have to stay in the conversation really when you're sober if you've been drinking and had a real problem for years yeah so yeah it's it's interesting conversation you know there's so much science and psychology in this field I've been doing this eight years now and I still learn something new most weeks Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. One, one thing that just came to mind to me is health is so key in this. And I don't yeah. think people realize how bad alcohol is for you and maybe just passing along health articles on, you know, how it's going to affect your brain too. ultimately yeah. who wants to and that's what be somebody that somebody has to take care yeah. of. Like my, both my in-laws, my ex-in-laws are a mess right now. One, she doesn't even know who her kids are. And I, she drank a lot of alcohol and I still drink uh, and I know it's not great, but I don't drink. I, I don't drink very much anymore. 
It's not hard for yeah, me to the go. The safe limits without. are a bottle and a half of wine a week. And yeah. you probably don't drink more than that. Yeah. No, I can't drink wine anymore at all because mm. wine just makes right. me go. Uh-huh. I mean, it's like it gives me a headache and it just makes me like yeah. feel like not doing anything. It, it makes me tired. So yeah. I like Fair champagne point. and Prosecco. So that's what I, what I choose to have. But yeah, so it's I, it's relatively easy for me to not like drink. It wouldn't have been easy before. But sometimes when I think about it and I'm drinking a drink, I think it's like poison in a way. Well, you're really choosing to poison your body. That's <laughs> what cars, you're doing. You know? Yeah. 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 yeah crazy. So but I have two questions about- and- I have two questions to finish. And then I want, of course, you to talk about your workshop, because I think anybody who's listening, who mm-hmm. either wants to do a dry January, just to like ha- do something healthy for yourself, or yeah. somebody who is really struggling, or somebody who has somebody, they can pass it along as just a gift oh. of, you know, you can try what you could try. And if they don't do it, fine. But I would love to know what you would tell your younger self. It's a question that I ask some of my interviewees because I think we have so much wisdom at mm. our age and you're 72, like what great wisdom you have and all the experiences you have and how forming Tribe Sober and with your experiences of becoming sober and really on your own and making a decision, which I think is fantastic, but not easy for a lot of people. So what would your current Janet say to younger Janet, the one who was almost drowned in the bathtub? Yeah. Oh, I I would actually say, be careful with alcohol, you know, just try and educate yourself a bit because you talked about how you don't think many people realize just how harmful it is. I read a survey about Americans recently that 70% of Americans realize that cigarettes are linked to cancer but uh, only 30% realize that there's a link between alcohol and cancer. So there's a lot of education to be done. So I would say to that younger Janet, be careful. It's not as innocuous and fun as it seems. I wouldn't say don't drink because I had loads of good times when I was drinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, drinking is great fun until it's not. But I would say to myself, recognize that moment when it switches from fun socializing thing to self-medication and that's when you get home from work and you're stressed and you open the wine to calm yourself down that's really the moment when it's turning into self-medication and that normally takes about 18 to 20 years that process if you started drinking as a teenager so I think my message really would be to me in my 40s late 40s that's when you need it to to stop drinking or to treat it with much more respect. Yeah. It's when you say, I need this drink. Oh, yeah. You have to say, "Mm." I do. And when you say it's, it's a reward. And because there's so much marketing and so much peer pressure, we get all these limiting beliefs. We think, oh, how, if I give up drinking, I'm going to lose all my friends. And how am I going to relax? And how will I socialize? So you have this inner struggle going on, which is exhausting and very stressful. So that's what we help people do as well, to overturn those beliefs. And for me to overturn my socializing without drinking uh, phobia, I had to force myself to socialize without drinking for months. 
and really push myself out there until I got to a place where I could relax and enjoy myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it takes work, you know, and people need to to recognize that and do the work. And there's yeah. a guideline, which is quite interesting, because sometimes people say to me, oh, I've been sober for six weeks and I still feel like rubbish. And then I say, well, how long did you drink for? And they say, well, 40 years. <laughs> but you have to be patient. And there's a guideline that for every year that you drank, it'll take you a year of recovery. And that's not to say that it's going to be years before you start feeling better, but your recovery will be ongoing. And my recovery was about three and a half years on that basis. That yeah. was a rehab doctor that told me that that's the rule yeah. of thumb that they work with. Yeah, I think detoxing, because that's really what you're doing when you're taking alcohol out of the equation. But even with food, if you have are, are, have a really bad diet and you've been eating a lot of sugar and you've been eating a lot of processed foods and, you know, fried foods and all that, your body goes through a bit of pain oh, yeah. before you feel better because it's yeah. your body's adjusting to you know, I want all that stuff. Where's that stuff? It's become accustomed to that stuff. And yeah, it's and that's not... why stopping and starting, you know, how people fall on and off the wagon. Mm -hmm. That's crazy because you're just doing that hardest bit yes. over and over again. You yeah. just need to push through that and then you'll get to the other side. Where yeah. So and easier. I found with anything, changing a habit, it's like the first like three days to five days is the, and then it becomes yeah, easy. Well, in 66 days, uh, we get a new neural pathway. Yes. Yes. I teach that. So I know that well. Uh, there you yes. Go. yes. You can rewire your brain and yeah. brainwash your brain and yes, use affirmations. Well, we've been programmed yes. by the alcohol industry, haven't we, for decades. So yeah. now we have to reprogram ourselves. Yeah, yeah. But you can re reprogram your identity into somebody that, because you're not who you're supposed to be as a, as a drinker. That's a guarantee. No. It. No, so, you yeah. So what would you say to somebody who is struggling with this? And maybe that's a good segue into your workshop. Yes, yeah, so a good segue into our Dry January Challenge. But I would say reach out and I would say do a dependence test. Can you do one month without alcohol? Does that thought fill you with anxiety and fear? Or do you think, well, you know, I'll have a, I'll have a go at that. And then I would say just try 30 days without alcohol and see how it goes. And we run this thing every year. We've run it for the nine years now. And it's a dry January challenge. So we ask people to make a small donation, well, whatever they want to donate to a good cause. It's a cause here in South Africa and it's a beautiful NGO. What they do is they put some, um, they're in schools in underprivileged areas here in the Western Cape and they provide children with yoga classes, which sounds slightly strange, but these children love the classes and they come from incredibly difficult backgrounds you know they live in places where there's gang violence and shooting and all sorts of things going on so you see them in their classes and they, they just relish the peace and they enjoy the meditative uh, benefits of it so this NGO is wonderful it's been going for 18 years now so for 250 round which is um 16 dollars you can sponsor one underprivileged child for a whole year of yoga classes. So that's what people usually donate. And in return, we put them in a group of people going through the dry January challenge together. 
And we also send them an email every day, which is full of tips, tools, strategies, inspiration, and give them a tracker as well so they can colour in their alcohol-free days. It's quite lighthearted. We encourage people to be sober curious. And some people do the challenge and they say, you know what, I feel so good at the end of this 30 days, I'm going to keep going a bit longer. That's so great. then we encourage them to 66 days and it's it's worth doing, you know, just unplug from the matrix for 30 days, be healthy. It's the best time of year to do this, isn't it? So right. Yeah, health. it is. And I think a lot of people are doing it. So you don't stick out like a sore th thumb yeah, if you're doing exactly. a dry January. It's like, oh so yeah, these... that's a great idea. Yeah. And you say, yeah, I'm doing it for charity. Do you want to join in? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, do it. So yeah, all the info else. is on tribesofa.com. It's on the homepage. Yeah. And the goal is always to get through the challenge, be dry for 30 days. But I would say drinking once over 30 days is a lot better than drinking every day for 30 days, you know? So if, if you just join this. and do your best and the goal, do, yeah. if you accomplish the goal, great. And if you don't, don't beat yourself up because you're going to be better off than you would have been anyway, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We were so quick to beat ourselves up for failing. And I don't see failing in practically eliminating alcohol for 29 days versus 30 days. Absolutely. And so, yeah. yeah. To people, you never fail. You just have a little data point. Yeah. So maybe there's a couple of data points in your 30 then, days. But yeah. And maybe next month I can do it for, you know, if yeah. your birthday is in the middle of January and you want to have a drink for your birthday, then make that the exception. <laughs> so if yeah. you, yeah. Or give yourself a sober birthday for, for maybe you haven't had a sober birthday since you can remember. Yeah. So, so our challenge, Laurie, it's open until the 31st of January. Okay. So people can even do a dry February. If you join okay. on the 31st of January, so they, you're still. Okay. So you, you get 30 they, days support from the day you sign up. Okay. That's great. So you can sign up and start at any time. It's not like everybody's starting on the same day. So I like that. No, no. You can customize but we'll still it. have people there that have started on the first. So yeah. it's lovely. It's a very chatty group already. Yeah. Last year I didn't get my act together, I think until mid January. And then I was like, I want to do this before my birthday and my birthday has been February. So that's like, I, I reached my goal, which was great. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for being here. You can find it at your website. I know tribesober.com, right? Yep. Yep. And okay. my podcast is also called Tribe Sober. Yes, she has a podcast. So if you need support outside of this workshop or, yeah. and I'm sure you interview interesting people who have yes. yeah. amazing stories. Yeah. Doctors and okay. recovery stories. Yeah. yeah. So I one thing people I don't think they realize is who, who aren't avid podcast listeners like myself, but you can go to somebody's podcast and you can scroll back to earlier episodes. Mm -hmm. And there's such value in going back and seeing, picking and choosing the episodes that are something that you're particularly interested in. It might not be the last couple of episodes, but go back. There's always gold in those older episodes yeah. that people do. Yeah, we've and you've been doing it for four now. years. You're coming on four years. Yeah. Yeah. A guy wrote to me the other day and he said, I listened to one of your podcasts every day for a hundred days and it got me sober. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is amazing. What an incredible story. How does that make you feel? <laughs> like you're in your purpose yes yeah yeah, yeah this journey, journey was for a reason thank you so much janet
Thank you. So let's keep in touch. Have yes, a definitely. All right. Bye. Bye, Laura.